Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. We've heard the words before. I didn't think this would happen to me. As meteorologists, our job is to communicate the weather forecasts and the risks that go along with them. But with all these warnings, why are people still unprepared when disaster strikes? Today, we welcome Dr. Howard Kunruther, who has spent years of his career trying to answer this question. We'll discuss the inherent biases many of us have when it comes to disaster preparedness, and we'll outline strategies he recommends to ensure we are all prepared for the next catastrophe. Dr. Kunruther, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Shepard, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, we're, and we're going we're gonna to get on a first-name basis here. This is Dr. Howard Kunruther. I'm going to call him Howard, uh, just so I won't continue to massacre his name, and I'm perfectly fine with Marshall. But you, you are the James J. Dinan, Professor Emeritus of Operations, Information, and Decisions, Co-Director of the Risk Management Decision Process Center, Bates College. You have a BA in Economics and Magnum Cum Laude and an MIT PhD in Economics. Uh, you are someone that we are really excited to talk about. Even as we're taping this, uh, the United States and our, our citizens, uh, fellow citizens in Puerto Rico are staring at the prospect of Tropical Storm Dorian and eventually Hurricane Dorian as it makes uh, its way to the mainland. And so hurricanes are exactly one of those types of things that we talk about in terms of people underestimating risk. So uh, nature has given us a perfect test case. But before we get into all that, tell us a little bit about yourself be happy to do so. Uh, you gave me uh, gave the appropriate background. Uh, I, I, do, I uh, am an economist. Uh, I will tell you, Marshall, I've often been called an irrational economist, although I think we can now use the, the term behavioral economist because I've tended to work with a number of the social scientists, uh, psychologists and geographers and sociologists to try to understand the decision-making process. Uh, but my background in economics is important here because uh, I feel very strongly, and our Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center uh, has m- had that m- uh, mantra that we really want to try to develop policies that can be implemented. And if we want to do that, we have to think about uh, how people and organizations, and frankly, how governments and countries make decisions. Uh, uh, just a brief note on the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center it was formed about 35 years ago, uh, and And at that time, we decided to have our mission of how we deal with low probability, high consequence events, because we felt that was an area where it was really difficult for people to make decisions, which we can talk about in a few minutes. And we've kept that kind of mission from uh, the very outset. At the time we started, uh, there weren't very many people who were interested in that issue, uh, and and it wasn't really high on anyone's agenda. Uh, Now it's a center stage, as you well know, and of course of your own background in meteorology. 
ecology that people are now more concerned about uh, these natural disasters, which we all talk about, but also all of the other low probability events that our center has worked on, like terrorism and accidents and the BP oil spill and a variety of these events that were characterized as low probability at the time, but they are now uh, higher probability. And with climate change, uh, we don't really know exactly what's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years, although uh, I've been involved in that area, and we can talk about that if you'd like. Oh, yeah, we're going to, we have plenty of time to cover all of these areas. As I'm thinking about, uh, us thinking about Dorian that's approaching the U.S. coast here in late October, uh, late August, I should say, headed towards the Labor Day weekend as we're taping this. I think back to Hurricane Harvey in Houston, where I remember hearing people say, well, we experience flooding all the time in Houston. We get big rainstorms. We're, we're ready. But as I have often said, and I actually mentioned this in a TED talk that I gave, Harvey wasn't something that people had experienced. It was an anomaly event. It was not something in their sort of experience portfolio of life. Uh, talk to us about that. And uh, as a lead into that, you and a colleague, Dr. Robert Meyer, wrote a book called The Ostrich Paradox. I want to know what that's about. And then I also want you to sort of think about this question that I, I just posed about how people perceive events that they think they've experienced but haven't. But first, tell us about The Ostrich Paradox. Well, I'll be happy to. It's a book that my co-director, Robert Meyer, and myself uh, put together, the co-director of the Risk Center. And our interest really from the very beginning was to try to understand a set of biases uh, that individuals have and that organizations that, that I would say at, around, the, around the globe, all of us have that problem of how we make decisions, particularly for these low probability events. And we, uh, and we all talk about this a little later, uh, we indicated that these biases uh, were ones that are going to be very hard for anyone to change. And so we proposed a behavioral risk order to recognize these biases. Now, the one point that I would raise, and I will say right at the outset, it wasn't something that I knew about until one of, of my colleagues mentioned this to me. They, uh, we call, the rationale, we called it the ostrich paradox, and you probably know from having looked at the book why we called it that, but I'll mention it for your audience. Uh, uh, most everyone, when we ask, what do ostriches do, uh, they respond, well, they bury their heads in the sand, which is something that I had thought about, uh, and so had Bob Meyer. Uh, but we, were, we actually then started reading about ostriches, thanks to our colleague, and it turns out that they don't bury their heads in the sand. They are very smart. They can fly, so they can, uh, they can escape very rapidly. They protect their young. And the reason that the, the myth of their burial their heads in the sand came about is because they have their beaks in the sand to get food. And the ones who do bury their heads in the sand are us, humans. Uh, and that's why we called it the ostrich paradox, because they don't, but we do. Now, in terms of Hurricane Harvey, since you raised that as a very interesting issue, we have spent a fair amount of time looking at Hurricane Harvey and behavior because of just what you said, uh, that this was a very unusual storm. And people People may have said that they had flooding, but they certainly never expected the kind of flooding that they had. And very few people were prepared in uh, in the in the uh, uh, in the areas that were affected by Harvey and Houston and and the surrounding areas. And as a result of that. 
They didn't have insurance. They did not protect themselves. And they were very surprised to get the kind of damage they had uh, because they did feel, as you indicated in your earlier comment, it won't happen to us. This will not happen to us. We may get flooding, but certainly not the disaster they had. And so that's what we are trying to address exactly the question that you posed, which is why is it that people don't take steps to prepare for disaster? And I think the one point we would make on, on Harvey is they did not have uh, a lot of past experience with this, and therefore they felt that it wasn't going to happen to them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we see that across the board with hurricanes, with tornadic storms, even heat waves. Oh, yeah, it's summer. I've experienced heat. But no, this is a severe heat wave and temperatures at night aren't cooling down. So it's something that I've noticed. Now, I want to shift the conversation to something that you and I, as a meteorologist and an economist, are very familiar with. But I think it's still a struggle for the public at times. And that's the concept of probability. Uh, What do you think probability really means to people because it's so important. I mean, we give probabilistic forecast in meteorology all the time. We give uh, rain chances in terms of percent chance of rain, the cones that we use and the ensemble models for hurricane tracks and where the storm is going, all probabilistic in some sense. So do you think people really understand probability, just the average citizen? I think the answer is no. We all have a hard time, and uh, you know that we all have a hard time with respect to dealing with the notion of likelihood and probability. Uh, and uh, you know, weather is a fascinating example because you are you are more well calibrated on weather than you are on a lot of other of these events. You can say there's a 40% chance of rain, and you will generally be right 40% of the time it will rain. But people don't process that information that way. They'll say, "Is it?" going to rain today or is it not going to rain? And there's a tendency to sort of think about it as zero or one. And that is really due to a bias that individuals we all have. Uh, it's uh, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, the two psychologists have pioneered in this area. And there's a book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, which has highlighted these points in a very, very graphic way. And, uh, and we build on that in our own work on the ostrich paradox. And that particular bias that I'm referring to, uh, I won't be too technical here, it's called the unavailability bias. And the, and, and, and the bias merely says if information isn't available, there's going to be a tendency to sort of say it's not going to happen. So that will be a zero probability. After a disaster where information is very available, like after Harvey, then there's a feeling it's going to happen to me. And it's one extreme or the other. And that's when people take protection. Only afterwards, not before before, they'll say, gee, I don't have to make my house safer. I don't have to buy insurance. Uh, it's not going to happen to me. Uh, after a disaster, there's a tendency to put that on the front burner and saying, I better do something with uh, to protect myself in the future. But what's interesting about that, Marshall, is that people might buy insurance right after a disaster when it's too late because they, they are not protected, like flood insurance. And then a few years later, when the, nothing has happened, they'll say, God, this is this is really uh, crazy. I paid all these premiums. Nothing has happened. I'm going to cancel my policy. And so they cancel their policy because they haven't had a loss. And one of the hardest things it is to do for people is to say you should celebrate not having a loss 
the best return on an insurance policy is no return. You should be happy you haven't had another hurricane. But it's very, very hard to get people to do that. Yeah. And you also talk about relative to probability and statistics to other biases as, uh, biases as well. Optimism, optimism bias and compounding bias. Talk to us about what those mean and how they relate to how people think about disasters and weather disasters particularly. Sure. Well, the optimism bias, which is one of them that we actually talk about in our book and, and highlight, is that there's a tendency to over to underestimate the likelihood uh, of a disaster or overestimate the chances it won't happen. So if you look at your data as a meteorologist, as you were mentioning, and, uh, and, and you've done extraordinarily good work in this area, the media, meteorologists will give you some data, and they're, they're going to be giving data right now on the likelihood of Dorian uh, hitting Florida or South Carolina as we're taping this. And th there's a tendency at the outset for people to, be, even before the warning, to sort of say, you know, uh, I don't think it'll happen. And so they'll underestimate it, and I'll be more optimistic because I really don't want to do anything, and I really don't want to move, and I really don't want to evacuate. Let's just hope that it doesn't happen. And, of course, that's a real challenge in terms of how you present information. We can talk about that in a few minutes on our behavioral risk audit in terms of how we, uh, we want to address essentially that particular bias. The compounding bias, we don't actually specifically talk about a compounding bias uh, in, in this, but there's a tendency to have a very hard time sort of compounding probabilities. Um, and we do talk about that in the context of behavioral risk audit, which I'll talk about a, a little later on, uh, in terms of people have knowing that what does it mean to have a one in a hundred year flood this year and next year and the probability could be next year or the year after and it's really really hard for people to compound those probabilities uh, there's a mathematical formula but you know we don't want to deal myself included in mathematical formulas <laughs> yeah exactly I, I, I mean I'm not my research will want to do it but my decisions each day I don't want to evaluate these things uh, in, in a very in, in a very explicit way and so we have a hard time compounding no sure no I think that's right I think uh, you know I always try to boil some of these complex topics down the sort of kitchen table thinking that people do, you know, you know, they, they do think about these sort of things in very binary terms as you talked about, or, you know, they think they have a chance of winning the, the Powerball lottery, but not getting hit by a hurricane, you know, so this optimism bias comes into play. So these are very real issues that we deal with in warning and communicating the public about the risk associated with disasters. Uh, I want to now pivot to something else that you talk Before about. Before you enough. do that, yeah, let's do, Marshall, go, go, I go think right you ahead. raised a really interesting point. Let me just comment on Please briefly, do. Uh, and then we'll get to your next point, about lotteries and disasters. On the lottery, there's a focus right at the outset of winning, and the probability is actually put in the background that it may be one in millions that you win, but there's a focus on that, because that's the salient thing people want to think about. On disasters, it's exactly the opposite. On disasters, no one wants to think about it, so there's a focus on the, the very small likelihood. So it's a really interesting contrast that you just posed between lotteries and disasters. I just wanted to interject that because I think it's important. People do think about the outcome when it's something positive. They don't want to think about it when it's negative. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. 
It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Howard Kunrather, Wharton Risk Management Decision Processes Center. And he is one of the directors. He's co-director of the Risk Management Decision Processes Center. And he is talking about a topic that's really near and dear to some of the things that I've been thinking and talking about as a meteorologist and a climate scientist, uh, because these issues of risk and decision making are at the heart of, of meteorology now. This is Weather Geeks, but... Something that I often say, Howard, is that we as meteorologists in a meteorological community have come quite a long way in terms of our weather models and our satellites and our Doppler radars. The next frontier, though, is getting the information over the hump to how it's used, because the forecast is terrible if people didn't consume it or make the right decisions uh, concerning a hurricane like a Dorian or a tropical storm, as it is right now. I want to now pivot to six other biases that you talk about in your book that lead individuals, communities, and institutions to make grave errors that could cost lives or property. Uh, I'm going to read the list, and we don't necessarily have to talk about all six of them, but I I certainly want to hear your thoughts on on most of them, or perhaps all of them, if we can do it fairly rapidly. Myopia, amnesia, optimism, inertia, simplification, and hurting. Talk to us about those. I'll be happy to. Let's start with optimism, since we mentioned that uh, just a few minutes ago, the tendency to underestimate the likelihood of personal harm, and your point about compounding probabilities, uh, which you said, and that we talked about how difficult it is for people to compound probabilities. We um, uh, we basically have suggested for this bias and the others I'll mention in in a, in a moment um, uh, uh, this behavior risk audit. How do you deal with this? Recognizing that they, we're not going to change people, uh, we are all optimistic uh, on with, when it comes to these uh, uh, natural disasters and say it won't happen to me. We're we're uh, optimistic on our lotteries uh, by saying we hope we win, but we go we go in the other direction as I mentioned. But um, let me indicate how we would deal with that. Uh, and, and this is work that we and a lot of others have done experiments on. And we have just finished some experiments with respect to the hurricane and flood problem by saying, if people feel that a one in a hundred chance is not going to happen to me, well, let's try to re- stretch the time horizon and indicate to people that if you have a one in a hundred chance of a, of a disaster uh, next year, and that continues each year, and each of those years it's independent of the other years, then if you look at a 25-year period, there's a greater than one in five chance of at least one of those hurricanes or floods occurring during that period to you if it's one in a hundred to you in next year. Now, when you say to people there's a one greater than one in five chance over 25 years or greater than one in four chance over 30 years, then people really get interested and say, maybe I better do some protection. And that is interesting when they do that because they are not compounding the probabilities, if they had accurately, then they would have recognized 
that's exactly the same probability as one in a hundred. But they pay attention to one in five or one in four because it's a high enough number for them to recognize. So we are suggesting to organizations like the Federal Emergency Management Agency and others have suggested this that they don't talk about the flood of uh, a hurricane of one in a hundred next year. That they provide information before these disasters of the likelihood of something occurring while they might be living in the house or while over a period of 25 or 30 years. So that's the kind of thing we do. I can talk uh, about these other biases if you'd like, or I'll, I'll pause for a minute in case you want to interject something. Otherwise, I can move on. Yeah, let, let's yeah let's let's just kind of briefly talk through some of the others, particularly as it relates to how how they might apply in situations where we're thinking about weather. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think the, the, um, uh, the, the bias that we all have a tendency is myopia, a tendency to plan over a short future horizons, which is obviously connected to optimism when you like to think about the short term. And here we, we say, we, people will basically say, I don't want to incur a large cost to make my home safer against a hurricane like Dorian or Harvey or Sandy or Katrina. It's going to cost me a lot of money, and I'm really not going to benefit from that uh, with respect to getting something back in the next year or two or three years. Maybe I'll get a, a re, an insurance premium reduction, but that's going to be much smaller uh, than the, the cost of, of, of actually making my house safer or making it floodproof or hurricane-proof or putting on a new roof. And so what we suggest in that particular case is to say, why not have a loan tied to the property that actually would be mean that the, that when you make your cost and the upfront cost, it's spread over 20 years, and the cost next year is going to be very very small relative to a, a greater reduction in a hurt in, in an insurance premium if the risks are risk uh, if the insurance premium is risk based, and so you're going to benefit every single year from having done that because you won't have to shell out a lot of money initially, and you can spread it over a period of time. So this is a way to deal with myopia in a very explicit way, uh, stretch the economic incentives over time through a long-term loan. Now, the, 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 uh, another bias I will mention is inertia. Inertia. We tend not to want to change. We want the status quo. It's costly to make decisions. We are happy with the status quo. There's a lot of uncertainty associated with change because you don't know whether it's going to be positive or negative. And the way we would want to deal with that in the case of floods and hurricanes, and this is something we've been talking with the insurance industry about uh, and with and, and other groups that are concerned, is we want to make the default option the option of having a particular policy and then getting people to cancel. So let me indicate this in the case of flood insurance, which so few people had after Hurricane Harvey and relatively few people are going to have after Hurricane Dorian in, in, uh, uh, in Puerto Rico or in Florida if it hits there. A lot of people may not have that policy. So what we would suggest is that what we do is we begin to uh, attach flood insurance to a homeowner's policy. And a number of insurers in Florida are doing that when they're marketing this privately. Flood insurance is a national program, but private insurers can market it. And we would say, the insurer would say, we can put, uh, that we, you, your insurance policy has 
uh, flood as a part of your policy. It covers both w- water damage as well as wind. And many people don't know that in a hurricane, the only d- damage that is covered uh, on their homeowner's policy is wind. But now you would have water as well as wind. And if you don't like that policy, you can cancel that coverage of flood. You have the option not to have it. Rather than saying to them, you well, you, if you want to buy flood insurance on top of your homeowner's policy, you can buy it. And very few people will tend to buy it if you do it by asking if they want to cover it. A lot more people will decide to keep their policy if they make it the default option that it's part of their coverage, particularly when they learn that that it covers both the wind and the water from hurricanes. So let me stop here. Those are three, those are three biases that we talk about. I can talk about a couple of others. Well, if you'd like, well, but I know we we're sh- we may be short on time, so I want to yeah, th- get I, back I, to you. I I think you hit some of the the main ones that we see in the meteorological community. I did want to interject that inertia, I, the maintenance of the status quo, the reluctance to change. I think that's something that we see in the climate change narrative as well in terms of the solution space, because we know that climate change is about, uh, you know, physical changes in our atmospheric system. But the solution space is where all the controversy and angst is. This notion of um, moving from one type of energy economy to a different type of energy economy. I, I think that there's inertia for the status quo because there are, you know, it's what we do. There there are large economic losses, but there are also economic gains if people are willing to sort of address those changes. So as you were talking about inertia, I couldn't help but sort of think about that within the context of the climate change narrative that I also deal with as well. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Uh, And and just for full disclosure, I was on the intergovernmental panel on climate change, the last uh, uh, one that they had, where we were trying to bring these behavioral issues into a chapter we were writing for just the reasons you're talking about, because of the fact that it was so difficult for people to sort of deal with that. And currently we've been on the New York City climate change panel where where we're raising the question, how do you get people to pay attention to something that they would prefer? to think about it will not happen for another 20 years and we have that major problem as you're well aware of far more so than I am right now in coastal areas and how you can get everyone to think about the fact that climate change is a reality and there's a tendency to sort of say well maybe it's not going to happen for 10 to 20 years and yet the fact is that you really want to try to take some steps now particularly if the climate change is going to lead to high sea level rise and more intense hurricanes as you're well aware of so that the chances of these happening even in the near future are going to be greater and so you have to put in the fact that people should be aware of this now because of the fact that the dangers of the likelihood of these events are going to be higher than they were in the past. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're talking with Dr. Howard Kunrither of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. And we are really sort of colliding uh, disciplines here between meteorology, climate, risk, uh, economic 
theory, statistics, probability. And this is really where I think the frontier of advances are in, in weather and climate communication and forecasting. So uh, I, I'm happy to have uh, have you on, Howard. Uh, as meteorologists, our job is to communicate the forecast and the risk and impacts that may occur. Within the last decade, we've seen a real sort of emphasis on social sciences among some of the funding agencies and within our community. Uh, and I think this is very much needed. So my question for you now, in, in a time when our ability to predict and foresee disasters is at an all-time high. For example, we're not surprised by a Hurricane Dorian that may hit Florida later this weekend. We know it's coming. Why do we still fail to protect ourselves and our communities? Uh, We've seen mass losses of life and property in singular events. In fact, some of the most uh, significant losses have been in recent times as our predictive ability has actually improved. Uh, Is this just a function of those biases? Is it just a disconnect between the forecast and communication? Uh, What is it? Well, it's a, it's a very important question that you're raising, and, uh, and let me let me introduce uh, a couple of other uh, aspects that are quite uh, real for most people uh, in, in dealing with these issues. The first is budget constraints. If it's going to be protecting oneself, and you say, look, I and and this happens with low and middle income, uh, and even some high income people, but certainly low and middle income people people uh, are, are going to ask themselves, you know, do I Real, do I do I have the money to and, and look at protection when I got so many other items on my agenda, including my food and my rent and uh, and other things that, uh, including things that I may want to do, but just to deal with uh, the the positive aspects of life of travel and, and and entertaining. And now you're telling me about protecting against a disaster and look at that very high cost of protecting or or even looking at an insurance premium that is very high. And so affordability uh, is really an issue that has to be dealt with. And we have some ideas on how to deal with that and say, look, let people know what a risk-based insurance premium is so that they understand that. But you may want to help some assistance to people who can't afford it, who are living in high hazard areas, uh, but give them a voucher or give them something that, uh, like a food stamp we do today, give them a voucher for insurance and mitigation. And then at the same time say, look, we're going to give you a loan. Uh, We want you to do these things as a condition for this voucher so you can take some steps. So affordability is one issue. The other issue, which is a, which is a challenge that we all face, and uh, is if people say, look, I don't want to protect my house. I'm going to move in the next two or three years. So, you know, why should I incur this high cost? And I think by notions of having a longer-term loan, which we talked about, and tying it to the property and tying things to the property, people will get higher property values for making their house safer, they won't have to expend that much, and they'll get a better price for their house by doing it. So you can try to uh, use the behavior risk audit for encouraging people to take those steps. So those are two real things that really lead people to do. It has nothing to do with the biases, but you can try to correct them in some way by addressing those issues head on. We're, we're talking with Dr. Howard Kunruther, and you just heard him talking about the behavioral risk audit. And I, I was hoping that you would bring that up because that's something that I really wanted to get to. Uh, he's the 
2015 Shin Research Excellence Award winner from the Geneva Association and the International Insurance Society. So we're clearly hearing from an expert at the top of his field in some of these uh, discussions that we're having today. Is there anything else that we, we need to know? Because I think this is for Weather Geeks listeners, you're bringing up concepts and things that probably aren't on the tip of our tongue. Uh, anything else we need to know about the behavioral risk audit or other key elements of the book that I haven't asked you? Well, no, I think you've covered it really well, Marshall. I think the, the one way I would conclude, and this is something that we are trying to do with our Rorton Risk Management and Decision Process Center uh, with my co-director, Bob Meyer, and, and executive director, Carolyn Kuski, we really want to have a, beha- a policy incubator, which is to say, how do we implement these policies? And the way we're, I think, approaching it is pretty much in the spirit of what we've been just talking about. We have to link science with policy. Uh, that's first number one. That's where you're, uh, where you come in, and 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 all of the risk assessment comes in in terms of what the likelihood is and and the consequences are of these disasters. But we also have to incorporate risk perception and uh, in, in the middle of this, and which is what we've been talking about here with the biases that people have, intuitive thinking uh, that uh, Daniel Kahneman has talked about that works extremely well uh, when you're when you have a lot of good past experience, but works very poorly when it comes to these low probability events. And and then think about how this intuitive thinking uh, where it's not going to happen to me or I don't want to change or the thing, or, or I, I want to think about next year. All these things are, are, are front and center for most individuals. Think about how that plays a role and then use uh, the behavioral risk order to link the risk assessment part, the science, with developing meaningful policies that have a chance of really being implemented. And you got to bring all the stakeholders in. You can't just have you and I have a conversation. We need the real estate community. We need the banking community. We need uh, the local government and the local communities in there and the states as well as the federal. You've got to bring all of them in to recognize that and banks and financial institutions and insurers. That's what we're trying to do. And I sort of want to uh, end you know, my comments on the notion that this is really uh, the main reason that I'm delighted to be part of this conversation with you is to hopefully get more attention paid to how we can move from the science, which is where meteorology and weather forecasting comes in, to the policies, which is how do we get people to prepare for these disasters when they prefer not to. Howard, how can, I mean, is there, I mean, I, well, I, I, I don't want to uh, leave yet, but I want to get one last thought before we leave you. You're such a fascinating guest that I, I don't want to let you out, out of here too soon. Uh, you, you have a paper called The Role of Insurance in Reducing Losses from Extreme Events, the Need for Public-Private Partnerships. And I, and I think what you were saying there uh, in, in that last uh, set of statements really echoes some of what's recommended. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the abstract and it says, uh, National Flood Insurance Program provides an opportunity to implement a public-private partnership that could eventually be extended to other extreme events. And, uh, and you, you've mentioned that. So you believe that there is an analog or a potential sort of test case model or case study uh, for the flood insurance that could be applied to hurricanes or disasters associated with tornadoes? 
Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate your raising that point uh, as, as a comment, because uh, Marshall, because that is exactly what we're saying, and, and earthquakes as well out in California. I mean, it's all natural disasters. You need a public-private partnership, and insurance is one element, but you cannot have insurance alone, and I do want to highlight that point, which I hadn't uh, up until now. You need to be able to encourage loss reduction, mitigation, but you also need well-enforced regulations like building codes, land use regulations, things that really are important because people don't think about these, and there there's an interaction between people not preparing for these disasters, uh, and if you have a better building code, yeah, they'll, they'll have to prepare, and all, what we all have to pay as citizens after a disaster when they have not prepared, and so it's the linkage of what happens beforehand with also what you need, what what we have to incur in costs afterwards, which and we have no idea how we're going to deal with Puerto Rico again if they have this hurricane, which we don't know will happen, but it's supposed to happen in the next day or two, or what happens to Florida if they have a severe disaster. There may be a lot of disaster relief forthcoming, and we want to try to prevent that, but you do need the land use regulations, building codes to couple with the insurance and mitigation. And yeah, the flood a- insurance program does that, I will say. And that's why you want to keep a national flood insurance program, but you want to let private insurers also market coverage. And that's happening today, as I indicated earlier. Yeah. And as, as we're taping this, we uh, Puerto Rico is likely dealing with Dorian right now and the mainland United States will be dealing with the storm uh, in, in the coming weekend ahead. So uh, I'm glad you were able to place a, a contemporary context on some of your thoughts. Where can people find out more about your work? Uh, do you have any websites, any social media accounts and also uh, give, give a plug to, to your books that are out there? Well, sure. I'd be happy to say, yes, we do have a website for the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center, which anyone could get to if they would like to. That's associated with the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, with the Ostrich Paradox, that's a book that has actually been published. It's, an, uh, it's both an e-book as well as a, as a book that is uh, available in, in, in paperback. Uh, it, is, it is actually published by Wharton Digital Press, uh, which is uh, associated, obviously, with the Wharton School. Uh, I, you know, I will say, uh, I think it's a re- it's a short book, uh, only a hundred pages. That we were limited to that. We were happy to do that. It has a lot of stories uh, and, and anecdotes, but but more more important, it has some details on on how we can do a better job of preparing. And so, uh, g- given that you've asked me, uh, I will give it, give it the appropriate plug. It's why we under prepare for disaster, but to help people uh, prepare in a better way. (laughs) Well, I think we will have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's my pleasure, and thank you for your insightful questions, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and with uh, perhaps some of the people who are hearing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think that's right. There will need to be greater conversations with people like me and you going forward. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and this has been the Weather Geeks Podcast. As always, thank you so much to the listeners. I also want to take this time to thank the production staff, our engineers, and everyone here the weather channel that makes the weather geeks podcast possible we'll see you next time
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.